Welcome to the What Scotland Thinks podcast, a series looking at the key constitutional and political debates affecting Scotland today. My name's Ian Montague, and together with Sir John Curtis, Alex Scholes and Claire Elliott, we'll be talking about the big issues surrounding Scotland's constitutional future. And today, now that the dust has settled on last month's Holyrood election, we'll be talking to John about where we stand going into a crucial period in Scottish politics. We'll have a look at whether the results matched up with what the polls told us to expect beforehand, what the performance of both the Nationalist and the Unionist parties means for the prospect of a second independence referendum, and what the long-term implications of all of this might be for Scotland's constitutional future. This is What Scotland Thinks. So John, we're now in a good position, I suppose, to, to kind of take a, a bit of a fuller more retrospective look, I guess, at, at the results of the Scottish elections back in May. And so I wondered if you could just firstly remind us of what those results look like. Uh, and secondly, w- whether there were any major sort of surprises in there in comparison to, to what the polls told us to anticipate beforehand, or actually did everything pretty much go according to what we'd expected? Um, the truth is, in the end, the polls proved to be remarkably good. If you take the average of the five polls that were conducted um, in the last week or so of the campaign, um, for the most part, they're within a point or so of the actual outcome. The only discrepancy of any note was that they underestimated the SNP list vote by two or three points, and there was a a converse uh, error in the opposite direction for the Greens. But otherwise, the truth is, this. So far, certainly so far as the overall share of the vote is concerned, um, this was not an election that contained very much in a surprise. We were, of course, extremely uncertain as to whether or not the um, SNP would get an overall majority. Well, in the end, they didn't just. They were one seat off, which, um, in fact, if you took the average of the final polls and assumed a uniform movement, which of course there wasn't, but if we assumed a uniform movement from 2016, then that actually did point to the 64 seats that they actually got. So the point was, you know, uh, the polls were saying it was a 50% chance that the SNP would uh, make 65, and in the end, they just didn't quite make it. So uh, the fact that they didn't quite just make it was not a surprise, but it equally wouldn't have been a surprise if they had uh, just made it. Um, Equally, the fact that the Greens, although not doing quite as well as the polls were anticipating, put in a record performance, that again was being anticipated by the polls. Um, And also that at the end, um, although Anasawa certainly made something of an impression on the public, uh, the fact that in the end Labour's vote fell indeed for the fifth devolved election in a row and therefore reached a near all-time low um, was in line with what the polls were suggesting and that in particular Labour was still struggling on the list vote where there was evidence that some people who were voting for the party on the constituency ballot were going to switch to the Tories on the list vote. That does seem to have transpired. And yes, the Conservatives basically more or less uh, repeating their performance of uh, uh, 2016. So um, the other thing, of course, that was striking, in a sense, about the election result is that although indeed the SNP got a record share of the constituency vote and the Greens got a record share of the list vote and the Labour Party did uh, record a a, a record low. Oh, and of course, Liberal Democrats 
managed to fall be below the threshold of five seats that are required to uh, be recognised officially as a party at Holyrood. Despite that, I don't think anybody's going to suggest that this is an election that didn't matter. It might have in the end looked rather similar to 2016, but to the extent that it didn't, and even to the extent that it did, um, this was still, I think, an election outcome that has definitely meant that the uh, question of Scotland's constitutional status is still going to be very much on the political agenda uh, for the next uh, four or five years. Now, you mentioned the importance of the of the constitutional question there, and, and this is something that we talked about a lot during the weeks running up to the election. And, you know, th- there was a lot of discussion and debate about whether actually this, this election was basically going to look something like a, a quasi-referendum, right? So people voting kind of along constitutional lines primarily. And so if we look, you know, beyond those kind of top-level figures that we've just been talking about, is there anything that tells us whether the constitutional question was pretty much the, the major factor, really, that was shaping vote choice here? Or is there anything that maybe suggests that actually there could have been other issues at stake here as well? Uh, uh, the truth is that it looks as though the constitutional question dominated uh, uh, people's electoral choice. If you take the average of the poll, the final polls that were done, which were, as we've said, pretty accurate in the aggregate, so therefore, the truth is little reason to uh, fundamentally disbelieve them. Um, they were suggesting that on the constituency vote, um, 88% of uh, those people who would currently vote yes were going to vote for the SNP. Only 8% of those who voted no. Um, on the list vote, the gap's even bigger, 91% of yes voters saying they're going to vote for one of the three list parties, that's the SNP, Greens and Alba, only 8% again of no voters. And the one poll that was conducted immediately after the election um, for a newspaper, uh, Comrades for the Scotsman, uh, pretty much you know, got those figures when people were asked how they had actually voted in the um, election as well. So that's one piece of evidence. The, the other piece of evidence, and I think a reminder that you know we're all familiar with the um, fervor and enthusiasm that there is amongst many supporters of independence uh, for, for independence as you know, evidence, for example, in people's willingness uh, to join uh, various marches. Um, we also, I think, got a very dramatic illustration of the extent to which people on the unionist side of the argument also, some of them, feel very intently. And that was in the extent of the tactical voting um, that was evident in the dozen or so constituencies where opposition parties were defending the seat against an SNP challenge, in most cases in a seat where the 2016 majority was very small, and might well have been toppled if the movement in party support since 2016 in those constituencies replicated uh, the you know, modest rise in SNP support and the modest fallback in Labour support, for example. Um, in those constituencies, there was very clear evidence of unionist voters, presumably, um, switching to whichever of the unionist parties was best was was trying to defend the seat. So, in the seats where the Conservatives were trying to fend off a challenge from the SNP, 
conservative vote goes up quite significantly, much more than the national trend. Labour's vote falls quite noticeably. In contrast, in seats Labour were trying to defend, Labour's vote goes up quite a lot, well above the national trend. Uh, the conservative vote gets quite substantially squeezed again against the national trend. And in the two mainland constituencies, at least, that the Liberal Democrats were trying to defend, Edinburgh Western and North East Fife, again, Liberal Democrats go well up and both Conservative and Labour squeeze. So, you know, even here, it looks as though um, voters on the unionist side of the argument felt it sufficiently important to try to uh, stop the SNP from winning locally that they were ignoring the traditional left-right divide of our politics and were willing to vote on the constituency vote for um, uh, the best place unionist party. And then you can see what happened on the list vote in those constituencies that again, you know, so in the, in the constituencies where the Conservatives were defending, where they do well on the constituency vote, they do not do so well on the list vote. So it's very, very clearly a tactical vote. Um, and that tactical vote, by the way, was crucial. It was in the end, the most immediate reason why the SNP did not get 65 seats. There were four of these seats that the SNP were unable to win um, th that were in regions where the SNP were not picking up any list votes and where therefore if the SNP had gained these seats they would um, have uh, been an extra SNP seat that would have not have been counterbalanced by one fewer SNP uh, seat on the list vote um, and therefore in the end this unionist tactical voting did prove to be crucial to the story of why in the end we ended up with um, not quite an SNP majority. The other thing I think then one can say out of all of this, given that it looks as though the question of the constitution was central, is then it's quite interesting to add up the share of the vote on the two ballots that were won by um, the Unionist parties and won by the Nationalist parties. And on the constituency vote, the answer is, 50.4% of the constituency vote goes to one of the three unionist parties. On the list vote, 50.1% of the vote goes to one of the list parties. And uh, therefore, I think, you know, two things flow. Again, you know, here is further evidence that suggests that Scotland is indeed just basically divided down the middle on the constitutional question one. And that two, therefore, neither side, neither side, can really look with any great deal comfort or confidence to an early referendum because the truth is that neither side can be sure uh, of what the outcome would be. So, you know, the message that comes away, we're looking at a country that's deeply divided on the uh, uh, constitution right down the middle and does now seem to be polarised on this issue because it's by far and away the thing that uh, structured the way in which people voted and did so to a much greater extent than it ever has done in a previous Scottish election. Uh, you know, uh, you compare this with previous elections, you were not looking at the SNP fishing virtually entirely amongst yes supporters um, and almost pretty much hooking virtually every supporter of independence. This is a new pattern uh, and does, I think, underlie the way in which the constitutional question has now, you know, it doesn't just divide Scotland, it's polarised it politically as well. So we're looking at this divide almost down the middle then of, of Scottish politics and 
actually during the past month or so we've we've seen a bit of data emerge which I suppose might give us a bit of an insight into the kind of underlying demographics behind who sits on either side of that divide so I wondered if I could ask a little bit about what that data tells us about the kind of character of support firstly for the major parties but also in terms of support for independence and for unionism as well. Well we've had a couple of polls published so far one the commerce poll that was in the uh, Scotland on Sunday that we mentioned earlier, uh, the other um, done by new polling company stat data for Gordon Brown's think tank, um, Our Scottish Future, um, which um, were done after the election and give us some information at least about the demographics of uh, who, which uh, party people were voting for. They don't necessarily suggest anything different from what the polls were saying before the election, but they do confirm that indeed who was voting for the parties was demographically was in some ways different, importantly different from the way it has been historically. Um, number one is that these uh, polls confirm that that long-standing gender division in support for the SNP and also replicated in support for independence, whereby women have been less willing to vote for the party than for men and less willing to support independence, that that has gone if actually now it's the other way around. So according to Comrades, for example, 52% of women voted for the SNP, only 45% of men. Now, even in 2016, according to the British election study, uh, men were still slightly more likely to vote for the SNP uh, than were women. Um, our Scottish future, very similar uh, uh, picture. So we are now looking at a situation where independence is now, if anything, something that women are slightly more likely to buy into than men, very much a historical change. And the second uh, uh, development is the now very clear relationship between age and party support. You know, back in 2016, the SNP actually doing pretty evenly across the age groups, um, according to the um, British election study. Now, well, 58%, according to Comrades of 18 to 34 year olds, uh, voting for the SNP, only 38% of those aged 55. Uh, the Conservatives, the demographic uh, age division is the other way round. Um, and again, that was what the polls were picking up. We also now know that the relationship between attitudes towards independence and age, that, that relationship is now much sharper than it was back in 2014. Um, so we are now looking at a different demographic profile of party support. And it, so therefore, again, another indication of how in certainly post-Brexit Scotland, um, the patterns of party support demographically are now markedly different and that we are looking at a different electoral landscape um, uh, that the parties are going to have to learn to negotiate uh, during the course of the next four or five years. And certainly analytically, um, this is a kind of quite uh, intriguing and important development about which I suspect a lot more will get written uh, during the coming more coming weeks and months as uh, more um, in-depth data becomes available through uh, academic surveys, including not least, of course, the Scottish election study. We've got Claire with us again today. And Claire, you had a couple of questions for John that 
I suppose, speak to the relationship between the Scottish election results that we've just been talking about there and the kind of broader question of Scotland's constitutional future, Claire? Hi, both. Um, Thanks for having me on the podcast again. I I want to sort of pick up on something you said, John, in response to Ian's question about the importance of the constitutional question in shaping vote choice. Given everything that we've discussed, so support for independent supporting parties, tactical voting amongst unionists, what do you see as the consequences um, of these results for the prospect of a second independence referendum? I think there are really a couple of implications that emerge out of the result of the election. Um, The first is that given that the message of the election is very much in line with the polls, um, is that Scotland is pretty much evenly now divided down the middle on the merits of independence. Although we've got a pro-independence majority in the Holyrood Parliament, that really is a function of the way in which the electoral system operated. It operated to the advantage of uh, the nationalist side. Um, But when it comes to votes, it's very, very clear. This country is divided in referendum. It's votes that's going to matter, not the electoral system. Against that backdrop, it's it's going to be to the advantage of both sides to play the referendum long, Um, i.e. it's not clear that either side should be wanting to rush Uh, uh, headlong into a referendum. So I think some of the suggestions on the unionist side that maybe the government might want to uh, call the uh, SNP at its own own calling and say, well, okay, you said you want a referendum. Okay, you can have one. You've got to have it this, you've got to have it this autumn. Uh, That would be an extraordinary gamble for the unionist side to take. But equally, the idea that the end of the pandemic will be declared to be sooner rather than later, so far as the timing of a referendum is concerned, which obviously is what's governing the SNP's position. They're saying we only have a referendum when the pandemic is over. Well, it might be in the interest of the SNP to be looking for lots of evidence that the pandemic is over rather than uh, taking the first available opportunity uh, to be going for a referendum. Because the truth is both sides, both sides really need to move the dial on the level of support for independence as registered by the opinion polls. That does therefore suggest that both sides have an interest not in calling a formal referendum campaign soon, but in engaging in an informal campaign that unionists do need to develop their arguments because they do need developing as to why Scotland will be better off inside the United Kingdom in a post-Brexit environment um, and to try to persuade people of the merits of that argument and to reduce the level of support for independence before there is any prospect of a referendum. But equally on the SNP side, and the First Minister himself has admitted that the economic case for independence needs revamping, uh, given the consequences of the pandemic. Um, uh, And that, you know, it's clear that the debate about what we would do about this, a single market border between Gretna and Berwick, uh, what we will do about a currency, a lot of that argument on the independence side is either intellectually underdeveloped and or certainly not been sufficiently discussed that we know how the public will react uh, to, this, to, to, to these issues. Um, and I think, you know, therefore also the national side need time to develop their arguments and try to persuade people of the merits of independence and to move the dial in their direction. 
So both sides have a lot of work to do. That said, in the end, there is no way that this Scottish government will be able to kick the question of a referendum in the long grass for the whole of the next five years. Again, the polling evidence suggests that although they don't necessarily want to poll a referendum in the next couple of years or so, that um, those who support, yes, do expect at some point in the next five years a referendum. And given that most of yes voters voted for the SNP and or the Greens, we are therefore looking at a government whose ability to win this election rests on the support above all of yes voters who expect a referendum in the next five years. And to that extent, at least, you know, the truth is that this Scottish government can leave aside the constitutional question no more than Boris Johnson, given the character of the support that gave him his victory in the December 20 UK general election, could have avoided and, and kicked Brexit into the long grass in the wake of that success. That does, of course, therefore mean in the end, you know, we do have two governments with very different mandates. We've got a UK government with a mandate to deliver Brexit, a Brexit that has certainly changed the level of support for independence in Scotland, has led to the call uh, by the SNP for another independence referendum, um, and a government that now has indeed uh, uh, has a mandate for holding a referendum on that basis in the wake of the Scottish election. So we have a clash of mandates, and almost undoubtedly, therefore, at some point, we are potentially looking at some kind of constitutional clash. Now, how that resolves itself will in part, I think, you know, depend on what happens in that um, campaign that is going to happen between now and whenever in the end the SNP goes to the referendum. You know, if the unionist side can indeed persuade people in Scotland in the next year or two that actually staying inside the union is quite a good idea, well, when eventually the SNP finds itself pretty much having to call a referendum uh, or to ask for a referendum in circumstances that do not necessarily look particularly propitious from their point of view, then it may well be that the UK government says, fine, be our guest. Uh, because much like David Cameron in 2011, uh, they will think that they will win. Now, of course, you know, they might still be, not be right. David Cameron in the end, it didn't quite work out as he expected. Um, on, the, on the other hand, if the polls have moved in the opposite direction, then the UK government you know, does face a tough decision as to whether or not it could safely uh, try to kick the issue longer, bearing in mind that you know, there will be a UK election in 2023 or 2024. And if the referendum hasn't happened by then, the issue will then come rebounding into the UK general election a UK general election that could result in a hung parliament in which the SNP um, are the hinge party, in which case, um, yeah, it won't be so easy at that point uh, simply to say no uh, to another referendum. Thanks, John. Um, so the election results clearly show that Scotland's quite evenly divided. Um, and I know we've been a bit quieter on the polling since the election, but I also know there was some interesting data coming out around the time of the election on how people feel about a second independence referendum and what they think independence would mean more generally. Could you talk us through some of this polling that came out around the time of the election? Yeah, there's a 
two or three interesting uh, uh, polls. Um, uh, one done by Lord Ashcroft, um, particularly looking at various aspects of attitudes towards independence. Um, one uh, done by uh, These Islands, which is a pro-unionist um, uh, think tank stroke campaigning organization, particularly concerned about the economics of independence. And then uh, also the poll that was done by um, Stack Data for Gordon Brown. for that's much more about um, attitudes towards holding a uh, referendum. Um, um, first thing to say that, um, uh, although you might be thinking that you know, all three of these polls are coming from organizations with uh, something of a vested interest in the conservative state union's cause, um, uh, the, um, they all uh, were coming up with um, uh, uh, findings that you know, replicate the 50-50 standing more or less of support for yes and support uh, for no in another referendum. Um, but they also you know, I think give us some insight into where, you know, are some of the strengths and weaknesses of uh, the arguments for independence so far as uh, 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 people's attitudes in, in Scotland um, are concerned. Um, so um, if we uh, first of all look at you know, some of the arguments about you know, sovereignty, about the impact of independence on Scotland's standing in the world. Um, that this is where yes voters seem to be most confident and where perhaps unionist voters are less confident about uh, their side um, of the argument. So for example, Lord Ashcroft, you know, asking people whether or not if Scotland becomes independent, you know, will Scotland standing in the world go up or go down? You know, 73% of independent supporters think it will be improved. You know, 60% of unionist voters disagree, but you know, the former number is higher um, uh, than uh, the latter number. Um, equally also, you know, the feeling that, you know, again from Lord Ashcroft, that you know, Scot the Scottish Parliament at the moment doesn't really have enough powers. Um, and again, that's something which is, uh, yes, voters particularly feed into. Um, and they also uh, reckon that if Scotland were to uh, rejoin uh, the European Union, that this would uh, uh, improve uh, Scotland's uh, position. Now, on the other hand, when it comes to economics, here you see it's the yes voters who are somewhat less convinced of their side of the argument. So Lord Ashcroft, for example, finds that only 42% of yes voters think that their standard of living will be improved, whereas 68% you know, of no voters think that um, it would uh, be made worse. So although you know, yes, very few yes voters think that Scotland will actually be worse off as a result of independence, a lot of them say it won't make any difference. You can see how the economic argument doesn't convince or at least it's not as much of a pull factor uh, for independence as is the arguments about standing in the world, um, etc. But note, however, one area where long argued, and it's an area where certainly those on the unionist side of the argument uh, often think uh, that it's one of their key arguments and particularly has become more so since 2014, which is the idea that Scotland's 
you know, is looking at a much bigger fiscal deficit than the UK as a whole. It was so before the pandemic. It's still so now. And that therefore now this raises questions about the ability of an independent Scotland to fund what is a high level of public spending per head at the moment uh, as an independent country. Well, here it's not clear that this argument is going to work for unionists in quite the same way as they uh, anticipate. So Lord Ashcroft, for example, found that 78% of yes voters think that Scotland at the moment puts more into the union than it gets back out of it. Unionists, of course, take the opposite view. Equally also, these islands, two thirds of uh, nationalist supporters think that Scotland's putting more fiscally into the UK than what it gets out of it. Now, uh, and unionists can take the opposite point of view. And here, perhaps, the indication that you know, in a world in which um, pretty much every country is currently running a very, very high level, very high fiscal deficit, how that argument about fiscal deficits may not quite have the same resonance as it did uh, seven years ago at the time of the independence referendum. And that certainly, you know, this is not an argument where uh, many an independence uh, supporter at the moment is necessarily going to be um, uh, easily uh, impressed. So, um, you know, to that extent, at least, um, uh, it looks as though, yes, the economic arguments are ones where um, independence supporters still, uh, in some cases, remain to be convinced. Um, but it's not necessarily clear that some of the arguments that you might expect uh, uh, to work for the unionist side will necessarily work. Uh, meanwhile, what is true is that yes, supporters are inclined to the view that you know Brexit is bad for Scotland and that Scotland would be better off if it were to rejoin the European Union. And that therefore you can see how the Brexit argument, although it raises other complications such as uh, the single market border, um, does in some ways make it more difficult for the unionist side to argue the uh, uh, economic case for the union uh, in a way that yes voters are going to find convincing uh, than was the case in the pre-Brexit world. Before we go we'd like to say thank you to the ESRC and especially their UK in a change in Europe programme who promote high quality independent research into the constitutional future of the UK and its relationship with the EU and who fund the work that we do here at What Scotland Thinks too. And their website is a really great source of information, not just on the issues that we cover, but you can access a real wealth of high quality research that goes well beyond the realm of public attitudes. So please do head over to ukandeu.ac.uk and have a look around if you'd like to dig a little deeper into any aspect of the Brexit process that you you might be particularly interested in. To access some of the data that we've been discussing today, please do head to whatscotlandthinks.org. And finally, thanks to John, thank you to Claire, and goodbye from all of us.